Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to Stagecraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson, and joining us this week is Lindsay Ferentino, who has not one, but two productions currently running in New York. Amy and the Orphans is playing at the Roundabout Theatre Company's Laura Pell's Theatre through April 22nd. And This Flat Earth recently opened on the main stage at Playwrights Horizons. Hello, Lindsay Ferentino. Thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. Thank you for having me. Um, It's unusual for a playwright to have two works playing in New York at the same time. And so congratulations on that. Um, Thank um, you. Thank you so much. Let's start with the newest to arrive, which is This Flat Earth at Playwrights Horizons. Could you tell uh, our listeners what this play is about? Sure. Um, The play follows a middle schooler named Julie who's 12 years old, um, goes to a middle school, and the play sort of takes place about a month after a school shooting has taken place at her school on the eve of going back to school, and it's sort of a coming-of-age story of her asking big questions about why things happen the way that they do, why the adults haven't made a better world for her, and uh, it's it's about school shootings, but it's also about it's more about um, just sort of a coming of age story of this of this girl that this event has has set these um, emotions into action for her. Um, it's an unfortunately extremely timely play. Um, obviously, yeah. you wrote this <laughs> long before um, the, the the recent parkland uh events that have been so much in the news what gave you the idea to write about school shootings or to use that as a framework yeah well i was i wrote the play about three years started writing the play about three years ago which was after sandy hook but a bit of time and distance after sort of the last mass school shooting and was thinking a lot about it and thinking I wanted something that I was disturbed by and wanted to write about but feeling like there was at that point in time enough critical distance from the last sort of mass school shooting and uh, obviously that turned out not to be the case because on the third or fourth day of rehearsal Parkland happened on our second preview there was the shooting in Maryland so it's sort of becoming an ever more present problem in our society so that was um not intended, obviously, but it was something that I just really deeply wanted to talk about and felt like there was there was distance to talk about the event. And I was thinking just a lot about middle school and what does it mean to come of age. And I had found a journal of mine from when I was in middle school where I was supposed to list the things that I was grateful for. And among them I listed, I was grateful I didn't grow up in a time of war. And that journal entry was dated September 10th, 2001, obviously the day before mm. 9-11 happened. And just remembering back to that time as as a seventh grader thinking um, that I had by writing this somehow jinxed the nation into causing 9-11 to occur and I think on one level I obviously knew that was completely illogical but also on a deeper emotional level where I'm trying to sort of you know put some meaning onto what felt like chaos and confusion um, I think that was um, 
you know, I felt like in middle school I had a lot of power. And I don't feel that today. And I feel like um, thinking a lot about that time and what does it mean to like come of age and amidst like big national stories. Um, you've said in other interviews that this was the most challenging play for you to write and that it went through yeah. many versions. Do you have any mm-hmm. idea why it was so difficult for you to get your arms around? Well, I think it's just a very, I think it's a personal play in that the middle schoolers, things that she says and wonders about and are afraid of are very much in line with my own middle school you know, fears, worries, anxieties, and also that those fears, worries, anxieties as a middle schooler haven't ever really totally left me as I don't think they ever totally leave anyone. And I think it's about getting back in touch with those, you know, that as an adult, you sort of come up with coping mechanisms to live in the world. And I think when you're thinking about middle schoolers who haven't developed those coping mechanisms to make sense of the world, it's, you know, you're reverting back to a, you know, a more naive way of thinking. And I think, asking those big questions is difficult no matter you know when when you're asking them julie the the lead character in your play um is fairly naive uh she she mm-hmm. doesn't know a she's sort of surprised um by the fact that there have been other school shootings she's she's what 13 yeah. uh she's fairly innocent and i wondered if you had any qualms about that I mean, obviously, you did not write this play in the Parkland yeah. context, but the Parkland kids are so poised, and and Julie is so naive. And I wondered if you had any qualms then or now about how you created her. Yeah. Well, I think that the play is very much set not today. You know, it's set in the recent past. It's what you know, the not so recent past. I think obviously Parkland changed changed that, but I also made sure to talk to a lot of parents of middle schoolers and talk to a lot of teachers of middle schoolers in towns that aren't Parkland and in towns where shootings, you know, shootings haven't taken place before. And and you sort of find about 50-50, you know, you find parents that are purposely trying to keep this news from their kids and you find parents that are feel the only way to explain the world to their kids is to engage them on this political issue. So, and I think, you know, you see both in the play that Julie is extremely naive and Xander isn't. Um, Her friend, you know, her friend who um, realizes that school shootings have taken place over and over and over again. So, you know, she doesn't have a computer, she doesn't have a laptop, there's not a TV on set. And then also, in addition to that, I think the play is not meant to be, the play is not kitchen sink realism. And I think the play is meant you know, it's a surrealist set with live cello music, and I think it's meant to be a specific story, and you have to just buy into the reality of the play, that it's a representation of this sort of reckoning that kids and adults are doing all over the country right now, of this moving from from innocence to responsibility, and I think it's a, a tale of that and not meant to go, oh, middle school, you know, it's not meant to say middle schoolers are so naive, it's meant mm-hmm. to say this is this is a representation of reckoning. You mentioned the cello, which was a a, a lovely uh, uh, extra part of the uh, performance. And um, there's a live cellist uh, sitting there. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, was the music, was the cello always a component of the play? Yeah, from the very beginning, I'd had the idea that 
um, cello music was coming from the apartment above. And it's something that there's sort of the play downstairs and, you know, that's happening in the apartment downstairs. And that Julie suddenly in the wake of all of that's happening and going on in her mind becomes interested in this woman that's always looked above her, but she's never had a relationship with in the past. And in this like new world where she's looking around and making discoveries and seeing the world in a new way, I think she takes in this woman upstairs in a way that she hasn't before, in a way that she's sort of searching for meaning and everything. And the cello music felt big and comforting and expansive and expressive and and beautiful in a way that what's happening in her life isn't. And I felt mm-hmm. like it was just sort of a, a part of, yeah, it's very much been a part of the play since the beginning. One of the other things that the play also deals with is the issue of class. And yeah. I wondered, why did you decide to add that element? Well, I think that that element of the play has been there as strongly as the school shooting element of the play has been. If if anything, I think it's weighted more towards that than even the school shooting. It's just that it's it's just a girl coming of age and realizing that the circumstances of her life that she's taken for granted are not the circumstances of everyone's life and you know realizing that other kids realizing that other kids have more privilege and realizing that the adults don't have the answers and that maybe there's something that her dad could have done that would have given them more money and given her more opportunity you know it's a sort of reckoning with all the elements that are her life and um it's just now in the wake of parkland that the shooting rings out more loudly than all of the other elements that make up the play but it's a challenging thing to produce this play right now because our temperatures are, you know, our thermometers are so much more tuned into the heat surrounding school shootings. But if you're actually looking at the text of the play, it's, you know, class is given equal stage time to the school shooting to her worries about having her first kiss, you know? Right. So it is truly a coming of age in every way. She's awakening yeah, in, absolutely. In, 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 in all these ways. Um, could we talk a little about your your other play, um, Amy uh, and the Orphans, uh, which yes, is sure. uh, at the Roundabout? And this is a play about um, siblings, including one that has uh, Down syndrome, dealing with the aftermath of their father's death. And I read that it was inspired by your your own uh, aunt. Um, who had uh, yeah. uh, Down syndrome. Um, you raised some very tough questions about the way our society has dealt with people um, who have developmental issues. I uh, I don't know if you saw recently the documentary that Rebecca Miller did on her father, Arthur Miller. Yes, yes, I did see that. Where she reveals that she had has a younger mm-hmm. brother who has Down syndrome who was yes. institutionalized by their parents. And I wondered, what did you want audiences to take away from Amy's experience? Well, I think we're in this really interesting transitional time for people of different abilities. You know, there's so much talk about representation on stage and in media and even in just employment. And society's perception has gone from my aunt's generation, which was just one generation ago of going people that are different and look different and act different than us should be put away from society and kept in institutions and taken out of our daily life. And to one generation later, we're seeing actors like the two actors with Down syndrome who are in my play, Jamie Brewer and Eddie Barbanel, who are 
independent, fully functioning individuals who have desires and hopes and dreams and talent. And I think that now is the time to sort of look at that difference because it feels to my generation like that, you know, institutionalizing people of different abilities was a world away, but it it wasn't, you know, and um, it wasn't that long ago. And I think we still have a long way to go. And I think so we're in this sort of societal transitional moment of going, how are we being more inclusive as theater makers, as employers, as, you know, just citizens in the world. And I think, I just think that, you know, it's the time to start asking those questions in all aspects of life. And I think that's hopefully what the play does. As, as you uh, just mentioned, the two actors who uh, sort of alternate um, in uh, yeah. the role uh, in your play, they themselves have Down uh, syndrome. And I was yeah. wondering how important uh, that is to you and is it a requirement for future productions that the actors actually themselves um, uh, have this uh, uh, different ability oh yeah it's absolutely a requirement I felt like if I was writing a play where I represented someone with Down syndrome and had to and was an on stage character had to only be played by someone with Down syndrome but going into that sort of not having a precedent for that, not having a way of checking how successful that is or what that means or how much lines someone with Down syndrome can memorize or how they conduct themselves in a professional rehearsal room or any of those sort of questions that institutionally, you know, roundabout sort of went in with me trying to figure out. And it turns out it's just not that different. You know, there's no special extra rehearsal time that they require. They don't need more time to memorize lines. They were the first people off, you know, memorized and off book in, in the cast. You know, they rehearse plays just like anyone else. And the only limitations that I think they have are not being given opportunities, you know, and um, and our own ignorance about going, oh, what, you know, what special, you know, what special needs, what do, what, what special, you know, attention do people with special needs require? And it, the only thing that people with special needs require is opportunity, I think. Was it difficult to find the actors? Did you have to audition uh, a number of actors, or how did that work? Um, well, I contacted before I even started writing the play an agent, Gail Williamson, um, who represents specifically actors with Down syndrome all over the country, hmm. and had her put me in touch with um, who she felt like would be interested in doing theater and had the ability to do theater. You know, it's a different thing. She has a lot of actors that work a lot in film and TV, but, you know, that's a different thing, obviously, because you can cut and reshoot and take right. and cut and reshoot. But who had the interest to do the same play over and over and over and over and over again and had sort of the stamina to do that? You're always, you know, looking for actors with a lot of stamina, um, you know, in general when you're doing theater. Mm -hmm. And so she had instantly said, I think Jamie Brewer, you should meet. And because at that point, I was only looking for a female. And I met with um, Jamie when she was in New York walking in Fashion Week and doing a press tour for American Horror Story. And, you know, she, we sat at her hotel and she talked about all the things that she wanted to do. And being in theater was one of them. She just didn't have any roles being offered to her. So I sort of left that meeting promising to write her a role. And she did all the workshops of the play. She she and I were just in sort of constant conversation when I was writing the play. So it was very much always being written for her. And then mm -hmm. when it came to casting an understudy, I went back to that same agent and said, 
I just want to be, you know, hooked up with who you think is the next, you know, who you think is the next appropriate actor. I didn't didn't specify gender this time, and that's how I met um, Eddie. And Eddie each performed Shakespeare for me in a diner, even though I told him not to <laughs> memorize anything. And he performed this perfect Romeo. And I just fell in love with him and went back to Roundabout and said, we have to sort of figure out how to include him too. So that's how I came up with the idea of writing a male version of the play so it could be, you know, more inclusive of all actors with Down syndrome. I've uh, also read that you do and actually enjoy doing a lot of research for your plays. Now, I know yeah. <laughs> you you observed your aunt's experience, but did you do additional research for this play? Yeah, well, it was a lot of personal research as well. Like, I interviewed all the members of my family about what their memories were of her, um, of the institutions that she grew up in, of the group homes that she grew up in, of what they remembered, you know, of my grandparents deciding to, you know, to make this decision. Um, you know, and then I also did institutional re- research, you know, through about Willowbrook and, uh, you know, the institution where she was kept and also went into classrooms today of, you know, special ed classrooms where there are completely different ways of teaching people with Down syndrome that even, you know, existed in my aunt's time. Mm-hmm. Um, your plays deal with, obviously, very serious uh, subjects, death of a parent, um, school shootings, but they are also very funny. And um, I'm, I'm wondering how hard is it to keep that balance? I think that's just how my voice comes out. I'm, my dad's a comedian. My uncle's a comedian. I was uh. raised around a lot of stand-up comedy clubs, and um, I just think that's probably part of it. I come from a family of just very funny people who are, you know, big storytellers, and um, whether on stage or off stage. But so I just think that's just part of my voice, and I think I think sort of the only way you, the only way that I know how to talk about very serious subjects is through humor and heart and just getting at, trying constantly to get at the humanity of the characters that I'm writing about. And I, I, you know, I just, that's just, I wish I had a better explanation. That's just sort of how my voice tends to come out on the page. And I think it's really a challenge, mostly for the marketing departments of the theaters that I end up working for, of how do you, you know, bring people in to see a play about a school shooting or about someone with Down syndrome, but prepare them for the fact that they will laugh and set up the right audience expectations that you're not. It was especially challenging, I think, with Amy, because that's more of a comedy. And how do you set up mm-hmm. the fact that it takes place after a death of a parent is about institutional abuse of someone with Down syndrome, but it is a comedy. And I think that was really important to me that that play in particular was a celebration of a life of someone with Down syndrome and not, you know, a play about a victim. There's another, though, sort of neat trick that you pull off because your plays seem on the surface to be sort of domestic dramas, but Mm -hmm. they are undergirded with some very major societal issues. And so 
I'm wondering which comes first. Do you do you start with I want to do a play about Down syndrome, or I want to do a play about as in a previous play of yours, Ugly Lies the Bone. I want to do a play about a female soldier returning uh, from uh, Iraq. Do you start there, or do you start with the character or a particular story? How do you start, mm-hmm. and how do you weave those those two strains together? I think it sort of happens simultaneously. I think there's always some issue in my personal life that I can't get out of my head or something, you know, like finding that journal entry from when I was in middle school or a personal relationship or a conversation I'm still thinking about. And then also, you know, separately, completely separately, there are political issues on my mind, like many people have political issues on their mind. And, you know, some news headline that I feel like is so emotionally overwhelming that I just kind of feel myself becoming numb to and shutting off and going, I can't can't even like, I can't even imagine what that must be like. And I feel like when I think about, when I hear myself saying, I can't even imagine, that's when I try to imagine. And I feel like that's where the plays tend to come from and trying to find an overlap of my personal life you know, and find the intersection of that and the political issue. And then once I find where that sort of cross-section is, then that's where the play is. Um, both the two plays now ending, uh, 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 now running, um, end with very beautiful, almost poetic uh, speeches. And, and that's become mm-hmm. somewhat of a, of a trademark of yours, <laughs> <laughs> where... The language is, is, is quite beautiful, and people are looking at a larger uh, vision of, of, of society. And I'm wondering, are you aware that it's kind of a trademark, or has it, where did that come from? Well, I think that's sort of the um, <laughs> the danger and the, I guess, the beauty of having two plays running at once is that people can't help but, like, compare and contrast them. But, you know, my next play that's coming up doesn't end that way. Ugly Lies the Bone doesn't end that way. Both right. of those plays sort of end in a more limited domestic space. Um, I think um, in both of the plays that happen to be running now, a view into the future and a view outside of the specific circumstances of which these characters exist was important and Amy and the Orphans it's important to see not the character of at the end of the play important not to see the character of Amy who grew up in this different time you know and was limited by her development but to see Jamie Brewer the actress who plays Jamie step forward and sort of own all the power and show the audience who she really is Mm -hmm. and sort of a view that's and that in that is a view into the future of how we can treat people with different abilities as opposed to how we always have and I feel like that's sort of the point of that you know what I mean and um, I think it's similar but different in this letter than that it's about this very specific moment in this young girl's life of which everything is called into question and then how does she the big question in the play is how is she going to move past this specific moment and I think the answer to that is the view of the future of going life goes on and there's great comfort in knowing that life goes on and there's also a sort of tragedy in knowing that life just marches past these moments where we feel like everything's going to fall apart and I think so I think in these two it's funny that they're both running at once and I certainly have been aware of that only seeing them sort of juxtaposed next to each other not in thinking it's a sort of trademark of mine. 
Mm-hmm. Did you see, um, as as you said, it, it is unusual to, to be able to uh, put the two side yes. by side. Do you see any conversation between the two, or do you see them as just very separate, distinct uh, uh, plays? I do see them and think of them as two very distinct separate plays that were written at different points in my life with, Mm -hmm. you know, gaps in between. But I do think, as if you did with any writer, there's certainly things that um, overlap because they're coming, you know, both of these plays are coming from the same person. And, you know, I think if you put all of my plays next to each other, you'll see things that overlap and you know, that I keep coming back to this idea of I can't even imagine, I think is an ugly lies the bone and this flat earth, you know, I think, um, you know, a focus on domestic families and how national stories affect domestic families is in across all of my plays. Um, you know, I think that, I think that's for really, I try not to get too bogged down in that and just mm-hmm. focus on what the stories are, what the characters want and need. Um, and I think that's sort of for the audience or I guess, critics to, to determine um, you know what, what where the overlaps really are well um, uh, I think we're all hoping um, waiting to see um, uh, what you do next what what topics and, and, and families <laughs> you, you. You, you you tackle next and um, continued success with the, the, the runs of both these shows and thank you again for taking the time to talk with us about them thank you thank you so much for having me And thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway Radio podcasts, which you can find on broadwayradio.com.